You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia on Sunday, October 18th. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Got your Bibles? Go ahead and make your way. 1 Samuel chapter 19 is where we will be this morning. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, It's good to imagine all of you at home that are joining us this morning. Just a reminder, if you are at home online and you are using a computer or a tablet or a cell phone, uh, if you have not gone to redemptionhill.com and launched the service from there, take a moment, jump over there, do it from redemptionhill.com, and it'll take you to a a service just like the one you're watching now, but there's going to be a space for you to be able to introduce yourself to those that are online. We've got some staff and some community leaders that are there that can introduce themselves to you. It'll give you a chance if you've got a question during the sermon to ask it, or if you would like to pray with someone to be able to do that. So that just is available if you go to redemptionhill.com. So take a moment, do that if you'd like. Uh, For the rest of us that are here, let's go ahead and pray as we jump into God's Word together this morning. Father, we thank you again for the privilege that it is to be able to come together. Some of us in person, physically, many of us joining online, thank you for the way that you have created and given the wisdom to create technology that enables us to be able to do this for these kinds of purposes. And and Lord, we ask that wherever we are as we're listening this morning, that you continue to do what you have promised to do by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and it's to help us not only see, but joyfully begin to surrender in greater measure to your son, Jesus. We ask this morning that you would continue to do that work for his glory and for our joy. We ask it in his name. Amen. I've said it before. I'm not ashamed to actually admit it. I was not much of a fiction reader as an adult. In fact, I am somewhat ashamed of this part. Um, I had not read and finished a a book of fiction after college until probably about five years ago. Uh, But five years ago, I started reading uh, a series of books that fall into the political action uh, thriller genre. And for the last five years, I've consumed pretty much every major author and their series, each one having elements that I find enjoyable in my fiction reading. There's elements of action, there's elements of intrigue, there's conspiracy and power plays, always at least one assassination attempt, and and always, at least generally in the hero's favor, one escape from such danger. And I've been consuming them for the last five years, enjoying them as I've been reading them, and So if you read 1 Samuel chapter 19 as you prepared yourself for this morning, you could probably recognize my delight to be able to come to this moment in the story of David and Saul. It was literally ripped out of one of the political action thrillers of its day. It's a story in a chapter full of action and conspiracy, assassination attempts, power plays for the throne, betrayal, and at the same time, acts of courage and deliverance. Problem is, unlike the books that we read and the Bourne movies that we all enjoy, whether you want to admit it or not, 1 Samuel chapter 19 is a real story. These are real people. These are real events that occurred. The story starts off behind the closed doors of a top secret meeting between the king, his son, and 
all of his advisors. Look down at chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. If you were with us in the previous weeks, you might remember we left off last week having spent the entire morning of chapter 18 looking at the two primary yet distinct reactions and responses to the Lord's anointed. We looked at how Jonathan, the king's son, recognized God's deliverance and salvation of his people coming through his man, the man of his choosing, David. And Jonathan committed himself to David in in covenant loyalty and surrender. But then we saw for the majority of the chapter how Jonathan's father Saul continually sought to resist, continually sought to fight against, and continually sought to find ways to see the Lord's anointed, to see David eliminated. Last week, most of King Saul's efforts to get rid of David were somewhat indirect or covert. He was scheming to put David in particular dangerous situations where the Philistines or or someone else could do Saul's dirty work for him, but David was continually delivered by the hand of the Lord. And now as we come to chapter 19, Saul's hostility to David, his continued resistance and rejection of David is no longer going to be private. It's all going to become very public. And so to catch you up in the story, if you, if you haven't been with us, the thing is, everyone in Israel could tell that David has been blessed by God. But at this point in the story, only you and I, the readers of the story, along with David and Samuel the prophet, know that David has been anointed by Samuel as the king of Israel, that he is indeed the man of God's own choosing. He is the one the Lord has set his eye upon. Saul, very real, is still on the throne. But Saul also knows that he's been rejected by God, that God has taken the kingdom from Saul, that God has rejected Saul as his king, And his kingdom was not going to be his forever. It wasn't even going to be handed down to his descendants, which meant Jonathan, Saul's son, the direct heir to the throne, was not going to be king. Go back to 1 Samuel chapters 13 through 15. You can read it this week. God told Saul through Samuel that he was going to give the kingdom to a man after his own heart, a man of his own choosing, one better than Saul was going to get the throne. So Saul could see everything that David was doing and that everywhere David went and everything he put his hand to prospered. And as that happened, last week we saw Saul continually get more and more envious and jealous of David. And not just jealous and envious of David, but he grew afraid of David because he could tell the Lord was with him. In fact, Saul even wondered aloud at one point last week, what more can David have but the kingdom? You've got to think maybe in Saul's mind, somewhere in the back of his heart, I, I assume he doesn't forget those moments with Samuel when Samuel tells him the Lord has rejected him and is giving the kingdom over to one better than him. In all of Saul's madness, I, I'm sure he still remembers that moment. And you've got to wonder if somewhere in his heart, he's watching this with David and wondering, is this the one? Is Saul starting to put the pieces together? Well, it looks like that might have been the case because Saul has decided that David must go. And his determination and his hostility towards David, the Lord's anointed, is no longer private. It's now going to be very, very public. So here we have the story as we come to the chapter. God has set his mind and his heart 
and his will on David to be the king of his people. And Saul has set his mind and his heart and his will on his determination to hold on to the kingdom. Saul has set himself against the Lord and his anointed. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 19, what we have underneath the episodes of the chapter is the will of Saul to hold on to his kingdom against the will of God and the advancement of his kingdom. It's a collision of wills. It's a collision of kingdoms. The kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And I say it up front rather than kind of pulling it out through the story because I want you to keep it in your mind that this story is part of the larger story of God's redemption. It's really just preparation for what we read even in the Gospels. There we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and really throughout the New Testament, that it was God's eternal will for His Son, Jesus, to be king over all. And yet history is littered with the collection of stories of humanity's attempt to resist God's will. In fact, it's this resistance that, that lies behind the movements throughout history in our world that seek to undo the peace and the joy and the flourishing that God has intended for his creation. One pastor said it this way. He said, this is the eternal conspiracy that originates in hell and mobilizes men and women for the purpose of resistance, resisting God's will to make Jesus king over the nations, resisting God's will for Jesus to be king over you. So this morning, as we go through this chapter, and all of its excitement and all of its intrigue, keep in mind that this small part of David's story is part of God's much bigger story. And the question that readers have been asking themselves and listeners have been asking themselves since it was first written and read is, what really happens when we set ourselves and set our will against God's will? Do we really think that we're going to be the ones who are finally going to be victorious in that battle. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. Saul makes it clear he wants David dead. The problem is, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Twice in one verse, you're reminded right there that Jonathan is Saul's son, the writer wants that emphasis to sit in your mind and sit in your heart, and he wants you to listen to it like a human. We know that last week Jonathan had made this deep and abiding covenant of loyalty with David. He had cut a covenant with David, committing himself to him and his well-being forever. If anyone speaks against you, I speak for you. Anyone comes against you, I go before you. Jonathan takes off his royal robe of position and gives it to David as a sign of this covenant he's making, he's committed himself to David. Now here we are, the very first verse of chapter 19. And the covenant and the commitment that Jonathan has made with David is going to be tested by the bonds of commitment between a father and a son. How is Jonathan going to go? It's a bit like that story with Simon Peter in the Gospels and Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed and would go to the cross to be crucified in our place for our sin, Peter says, no way, never going to happen. Not going to let it happen to you. And then three times that night, just as Jesus said, Peter betrayed him. Standing there, right there, warming himself by that fire. That young girl points out to him, aren't you one of the guys that's with him? No, not me. 
that commitment only went so far. But what about Jonathan? Reading it like a human, it would be in Jonathan's best interest at this point now to side with his dad. I mean, he's the heir to the throne, right? But as we saw last week, Jonathan saw that God's grace and salvation was at work through David. And to Jonathan, that was more compelling than any kind of personal advancement that he could pursue. And so we read in verse 2, Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. So from a secret meeting behind closed doors with the king and his advisors to a, a private meeting between these two men, we see exactly the way in which Jonathan is going to go. Jonathan, the son of the king, the prince, the one with all of the crown rights, as man sees it heir to the throne, has now made the king of Israel his father, his enemy. He sided with David. Now, I know it's kind of a sidebar, but most of the times when we talk about Jonathan and David, we, we talk about them in the dynamic of the friendship between them and the value of the friendship between them and the elements of their friendship and the model of their friendship based on a mutual commitment to the living God. And that's a great way to look at the story. But if you just stop and consider Jonathan even here right now, as much as he is a model of faithful friendship to David, Jonathan is a model to us today of the cost of following the Lord's anointed. The cost of covenant loyalty to God's king. Right here, it's going to cost Jonathan something to stay committed to David. It's going to cost him the relationship with his father, the king. And Jonathan tells David, my dad is seeking to kill you. So therefore, he helps devise a plan. Be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. So now from one meeting to another meeting to another clandestine meeting, Jonathan is going to bring his father out to the place where David is hiding, so close where if David probably sneezes, steps on a twig, makes some kind of noise right there, it'll blow the whole thing, but close enough that David can overhear the conversation, right? And Jonathan is going to speak in David's defense to his father. And what David overhears in that field, that, that time, whether it's morning or evening, I don't know. What he overhears is a wonderful example of how to speak the word of God to someone truthfully and lovingly. One scholar used these words. He said, the argument that we hear was rhetorically vigorous, logically persuasive, morally convincing, and theologically powerful. So let's listen in as Jonathan positions his father nearby, the place where David is hiding in wait to hear. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Listen, Dad. At every turn along the way, you've received nothing but good from the actions and the behaviors of this man. Though the nation loves him, all the people love him. He has the, the crowd-pleasing power of the nation behind him. He's never turned his hand against you. 
He's never sought to grasp anything from you. He stepped out in between the armies into the valley. He faced the Philistine and defeated him. And you rejoiced. In fact, it's David, it's this man, this innocent man, who's used the gifts that he's been given to soothe your tormented soul over and over again. Listen, you've received nothing but goodness from the hand of this man. You are scheming against and sinning against an innocent person. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? He starts with an appeal to what Saul has received just from the virtue of David's character. And then he follows it up with an appeal to God's word. Right there when Jonathan says, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? He's appealing to Deuteronomy chapter 19. The law of God against the shedding of innocent blood. And the retributive action that's necessary when the perpetrator goes unknown. Jonathan said, let not the king sin. Dad, the problem at hand is a sin problem. And it's serious. Go back and consider Jonathan's conversation with his dad at some point this week. It's a tremendous model. He appeals to the common blessing that Saul had received through David's character, through his actions, through his being. And he appeals to them on the basis of that but the word of God. It's a wonderful way to bring the truth of God's word persuasively and powerfully and lovingly to someone. It's fantastic. In verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he, talking about David, shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So it seems like a truce has been cut now. God has delivered his man, his anointed, through the friendship and through the actions of Jonathan. Which for those who were listening to this in its original hearers, those who would listen to it and read it for centuries, in your mind, if you've been with the story of 1 Samuel so far, you should be hearing in your mind, wait a minute, God's delivered his man through the, through the, through the work, through the action, through the friendship of Jonathan? Well, it was Jonathan, way back in chapter 14, who was at the other end of his father's spear after Saul had made a rash vow, found out that it was his son who was guilty of what Saul had made Saul angry. And Saul stood there getting ready to kill his own son until the army interceded on Jonathan's behalf and spared his life. And now here Jonathan is interceding on David's behalf before his father's spear comes to him. It's a fantastic story. But the truce didn't last forever. Verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Richard Phillips describes the scene this way. Consumed by fear of phantoms that existed only in his mind, 
Saul found that his fear and jealousy made him a torment to himself so that he could not sit in his house without a spear in his hand. The language there is very evocative. Saul struck his spear into the wall and David fled. For just before that, the writer told us that it was David who struck the Philistine and they fled. See, Saul was attempting to do to David what David had done to the Philistine. This is how the roles have begun to reverse. And as Gordon Ketty, a Scottish pastor of the last century said, Saul was under the influence of the mad passion of sin. I'd love to hear the accent say that. I won't try to imitate it, but Saul was under the influence of the mad passion of sin. He said Saul was living a lie. That's why he could so easily make pious vows and contradict them in the same breath. And Ketty goes on to argue that in this respect, Saul presents in concentrated form what must be true of everyone who is restrained by the knowledge of right and wrong, yet is ultimately conquered by anger, lust, and other evils. Without a change, he said, a sinner is a mess. He hardly knows himself. And even though he knows that God will judge wickedness, he goes on doing it as if he had a death wish and encourages others along the same fatal road. What was concentrated in him is true of every person apart from the saving power of Christ. Ketty says we are unable to live up to our moral pretensions and are capable of sins that we would eagerly condemn in others and that must finally condemn us before God. It's why, he says, appeals to common grace and rational prudence ultimately fail in restraining sin. The power of sin so infects the mind that men and women are suicidally irrational in their pursuit of wealth and power and lust or hatred. Saul is caught up in the passion of madness in his sin. And he can see the Lord's anointed as nothing but a threat. A threat to his power, a threat to his control, a threat to his throne, a threat to his kingdom. Friends, how do you see the Lord's anointed this morning? How do you see Jesus? Do you see him only as a threat ultimately to your autonomy, your independence, your pursuit of power, your pursuit of your own passions? Is he just a threat to you? Or do you see and can you enjoy his goodness? You see, the reality of it is, if you go back and read it, Saul's resistance to David isn't rational. He's received nothing but goodness from the hand and the actions of David. Friends, our resistance to God's anointed, our resistance to Jesus is just as irrational. It was in Jesus' own day, if you go back and read the Gospels, it was the religious leaders who saw him as nothing but a threat. A threat to their own leadership, a threat to their own power, a threat to their own independence, a threat to their own pursuits. When they had received nothing but goodness. In fact, it was the goodness of God through the person of Jesus that would make them so angry. Just as it was the goodness of David acting on behalf of the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God that continues to inflame the anger and the jealousy of Saul. He was unwilling to receive him. 
just as the Pharisees were unwilling to receive Jesus. It was going to cost too much. Their autonomy, their power. Friends, is there in you an unwillingness in your heart to receive the grace and goodness of God to you and his anointed, in Jesus? This is what's playing out behind the scenes in the heart of the king here. But as the story goes, we've got to keep reading. David evades the spear, but he heads home, and he can't evade him much longer. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. This is the big, giant, unmarked cargo van parked around the corner from the house in the movie. It's got the guys in the back pulling on the masks, racking and loading their weapons, waiting, waiting for their target to leave first thing in the morning so that they can grab him, apprehend him, and kill him eventually. That's what's happening right here. I mean, it's ripped right out of your favorite movie. Hollywood didn't make this stuff up. Just read your Bibles. It's great. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. I mean, we have no idea how she came to know the plans of her father, but they've gone public. Remember, it's not private anymore. Maybe Jonathan told her, maybe one of Saul's advisors. We don't know how, but she knows the plans. And again, like her brother, she has made the decision in this moment to side with David, her husband. And in that decision, her father becomes her enemy. And in verse 12, Michael let David down through the window and he fled and escaped. Shades of Rahab letting down the spies from the wall in Jericho that they might go back and give the report to the armies of Israel. Shades of Paul in Damascus fearing for his life being let down from the city wall in a basket covered by a blanket lest he be killed. Here is God's man, his anointed, being let down through the window of his home fleeing and escaping. In verse 13, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent his messengers to take David, she said, he's sick, look. Again, Hollywood didn't create this stuff. It's in your Bible. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was not the first time someone played sick in bed. It's right here. But Saul wasn't buying it. And this is a moment I do hope to see in eternity one day. His messengers come back and tell him, David's sick, sorry. Let's just wait till he's healthy and can fight back. Let's have a fair fight, king. Saul sends the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in bed that I might kill you idiots. Go pick up the bed and bring him here. We've got to kill this man. It's crazy. Verse 16, when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul wasn't pleased. And he said to his daughter, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go that he's escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Is that what David said? I mean, we don't have any record of their conversation, but... Michael just told her dad that she had to help David escape or else David would kill her. That he threatened her. It's an interesting little scene. It's an interesting little series of episodes. And I debated back and forth as to whether or not we get into the nature of her deception in this story. And 
Here's the thing I think we need to understand about it. Life on this side of eternity is messy. God does not lie. God hates lies. Saul's sin has created an environment where his daughter deceives him to save her husband whose life was innocent and at stake. I thought about it and I was reminded, you might be familiar with the story of Corey Timboom. She and her family hid Jewish men and women and families in their home during World War II, trying to rescue them to keep them from being taken to concentration camps. She had a sister, if you read the story, who was adamantly against deceiving the government, adamantly against lying. Therefore, there were times when she did own up to the fact that they were hiding Jewish families. Those families were taken and sent to concentration camps where they were killed. Corey, her parents, and the others who were a part of what they were doing, had decided that to love their neighbor as as themselves meant at this point in time in history, they needed to deceive the ruling authorities in order to preserve innocent life. There is no tidy explanation of what is going on here with Michael simply because life is messy. The deception and the lies that she shows are sin. And yet God uses them for his glory and to advance his purpose. He doesn't justify them. As one writer said, the lies of the characters of the Bible are part of the story simply because it's what they did. Whether we would ever be justified in doing likewise is another question. The issue is here, the Lord's anointed is delivered through the actions and even the deception of his wife. And Jen Wilkin makes the point that Michael takes her place here in a long line of women who have bravely deceived the powers at hand to preserve innocent life. From Rachel to Rahab to Tamar to Michael to the Hebrew midwives who refused to kill the firstborn Hebrew children after Herod told them to do so in fear of the Messiah that was told to come. His anointed is delivered once again from danger. Verse 18 Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. And that had to be hard for Samuel to hear. I mean, Samuel loved Saul. We found Samuel a few weeks ago grieving the fact that Saul has gone so far off the reservation and been rejected as king by God that he has sinned against God and the people. Samuel served Saul. He loved Saul. He spoke God's word to Saul. He saw Saul's continued rejection of God's word, his failure to repent. He loved him. So it had to be hard for him to hear what he was doing to David, the one that Samuel had anointed as the king at the word of God. But it probably wasn't a surprise to him. And David and Samuel, the writer said, went and lived in Nioth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. So Saul's network of informants is so extensive that even here, word gets back to him of where David is. So, verse 20, Saul sends messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent another group of messengers and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers a third time and they also prophesied. I mean, this is shades of Numbers 24, right? Balaam the prophet paid to speak curses against Israel. But when he opens up his mouth, all God will allow him to do is bless Israel. 
three teams of assassins saw sins to kill David, and three teams of assassins, overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, prophesying the Word of God. And the expectation, as you read the story, is that as God delivers David from certain death at the hand of Saul through Jonathan, and he flees to be with his wife at home, and God again delivers David through the attempted efforts to kill him at Saul's hand through the actions of his wife, David flees to Samuel, and God is going to use who to deliver David? Samuel, right? That's not what happens. There's a bigger lesson at hand. The expectation naturally is now God is going to use Samuel, but God is free to use whatever means he decides to accomplish his will. And the means that God uses are never as important as the source, which is him. And what we see is that ultimately the safety of God's people rests in his hands and his commitment and faithfulness. David is with Samuel, Saul is sending assassins, they're getting overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. So Saul decides that if he wants the job done, he's got to do it himself. Verse 22, Saul himself goes to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And, and one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. If you've been with us in the story, does it sound familiar at all? Saul is out looking for something. He comes to a well to ask directions for where Samuel the prophet is, and he gets directions from a well. Back in the beginning, in chapter 9, when Saul is first on the scene, in the trajectory, the kind of the path to his coronation as king, Saul is out looking for his father's lost donkeys. His servant says, we need to probably talk to the prophet of God. They go to a well to ask directions to Samuel's house. They meet a group of women who tell them where Samuel lives, and they go to find Samuel. Wait a minute. Keep reading. And when Saul went there to Nioth and Ramah, the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. Back in chapter 11. Again, as the confirmation of Saul as the king, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. He prophesies as the authority of God by the Spirit of God comes upon him for the job that he's about to do. So wait a minute. It's sounding a lot like that path to Saul's coronation. Verse 24 gets a little different. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that night and all that day. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? You see, back in chapter 11, when Saul began to prophesy ecstatically with joy, as the Spirit of God came upon him, the people looked around and was like, is Saul among the prophets? Like, astonished. Is Saul one of them? Well, now here he is, years later, lying naked on the ground, prophesying. And that little phrase that became a common phrase we learned in Israel is said differently this time. It's not a phrase said in astonishment about the man, it's a phrase said in ridicule about what's happening. You see, this story here at the end of chapter 19 mirrors Saul's entrance into kinghood, except this time instead of becoming king, he's being undone. The same pathway to kinghood is being shown again here as his final undoing of his confirmation. And it culminates in the, the second disrobing of the story, really. Remember, Jonathan gave David the signs of his royal position and power as an act of faith, as an act of covenant loyalty. And here, God strips Saul of the very same signs of his position and power 
and he's left humbled and overwhelmed on the ground. It's an amazing story. If Saul wasn't such a tragic figure. Here he is speaking the word of God, but unable to actually hear it. And as we've gone through the story and we've watched the trajectory of the life of Saul, he's had countless appeals to repent. Countless appeals have come to him through God's word. And over and over again, we find Saul suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and God now giving Saul over to the desires of his heart. Saul had set his heart, he had set his will on his desire to sit on the throne, to be the king. It was going to be his kingdom. And in that, he set himself in direct opposition to God's will. Paul Tripp, many of you might be familiar with his books, The Counselor, His Pastor. He said that you and I either attach our identity, meaning, purpose, and inner sense of well-being to earth-bound treasures of the kingdom of self. What a sentence. That's what Saul's done. He's attached everything to the earthbound treasure of holding fast to that throne. He's going to be the king in his mind. He set his will towards that reality. And we either do the same thing or we attach ourselves to God's king and the heavenly treasures of his kingdom. What Tripp is getting after and what we see in this chapter is that each of us is living for something. We're driven either by the kingdom of self, the kingdom of our own making, the kingdom of our will, and the pursuit of our autonomy and our pleasure and our power and our purpose. We're living for the kingdom of our own making or we're living for the kingdom of God. I mean, if we were to go home this afternoon and turn on YouTube and the video story of your life was on display for any of us to watch, what would we actually see? Whose kingdom will we watch you seek to preserve and build? Whose will will we watch you champion and pursue? David, I actually believe, reflects, I think, on this period of his life and this period of Saul's life and when he writes Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. We're at the point in David's life when different psalms are going to start intermixing into the story. In fact, that episode when David's wife, Michael, lets him out of the window earlier in the chapter, it's the background for Psalm 59. But I think David is reflecting overall on this period of time when he writes Psalm 2. And he thinks back over this whole period in a very gospel-oriented way. Psalm 2 starts this way. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is Saul. He has set himself against the will of the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. He wants to cast aside all the bonds of the will of the Lord and the kingdom of God. This is the heartbeat of the kingdom of self that seeks to take over in each and every single one of our hearts. But David goes on, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Saul's will versus God's will. A collision of wills and kingdoms. Your will versus God's will. My friends, if you don't know it already, God is and will remain undefeated in these battles. You can try to resist all you want, but you're not going to win. It's tragic to go back and read the story and consider all the opportunities presented to Saul to repent of his sin and be reconciled to God. In fact, if you just go back to chapter 19, even put 18 with it, all these different schemes of Saul's, all these attempts to get rid of David, to resist the the Lord's anointed, to get rid of him, to kill him, all of them come to naught. David defeating the Philistines, Saul's daughter loving David, Jonathan rescuing David, Michael letting him out, David slipping the spear, the Spirit of God finally humbling him, putting him on his face in the ground naked and prophesying. All of these things should have been elements of God's mercy in Saul's heart, leading him to see the foolishness of all of his behavior, of all of his desires, of all of his pursuits, of everything that's captivated him. These things were all aspects of God's gracious mercy to Saul. If he would just see them, just how foolish his heart really is. That's why I love the way William Blakey said it. He said, friends, if there be in you the faintest dissatisfaction with your past life, the faintest desire for a better one, take advantage of the opportunity and turn to God. If you sense that God is thwarting, stopping the advancement of your sinful, selfish, or sensual ambitions, do not harden your heart, but present it to God for deliverance from sin. Blakey goes on to reference that moment when Balaam the prophet was hired to curse Israel, and he sought to go forward on his wicked errand, he said, but God sent an angel with a flaming sword to bar his way. Blakey appeals with his congregation 150 years ago, And he says, you too should likewise respond to God's opposition to your sin the same way as Balaam. Where Balaam said, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. Friends, turn back from your sin and turn to God for forgiveness through the blood of his son, Jesus. Friends, this was my story. As a 20-year-old man steeped in the passions of his heart and the sensual pleasures that were handed out to him, God literally thwarted the advancement of my sin. There was no grand cataclysmic moment. There was no great sermon that I heard. There was no great event that occurred. He simply reached into my heart and made all of that distasteful. I simply couldn't find pleasure in the same things any longer. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why some things that I had found such joy in and pleasure in all of a sudden no longer had the same joy and pleasure. There had to be a reason. 
And God in his kindness, as Blakey said, thwarted the advancement of my sinful, selfish, and sensual ambitions and in his grace kept me from hardening my heart against him. This is the mercy of God if you see him standing against your sin. Friends, if you're here this morning and this is you, hear me. Hear his word. If you remained determined in your resistance to God, if you remain determined to do battle against him, to reject his king, I plead with you to let Saul be a cautionary tale of warning to you. David says in Psalm 2 verse 9, God will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, if God is thwarting the advancement of your sinful, selfish, or sensual ambitions, do not harden your heart against him. Turn from your sin and to him for forgiveness through the blood of his son Jesus. He will receive you. And as David goes on to say, he will shelter you and give you refuge. Friends, if Saul was not able to gain wisdom afforded to him by God's patience, it's best that you and I not waste the same opportunity. So listen to how David ends Psalm 2. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Everyone listening and reading, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a promise. Friends, what a comfort. Safe within the walls of God's glory. Free to fully enjoy all of God's goodness to you and then free by his grace to live in peace towards those who would be against you. I mean, go back and read it this week. Just consider it. In the end of chapter 19, that great episode with Saul's assassins and the prophets, it was as his enemies approached that they were overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and began to prophesy as the prophets were worshiping and exulting in God's word. Friends, let it be so that the more we deeply enjoy God's word and his grace together, that through our collective witness to Jesus and his gospel, that God would work by his spirit through our witness and his word to bring to him those who would seek to resist and reject him. God did not give you his grace so that your kingdom of self would work and be successful. He gave you his grace in order to invite you to a better kingdom. The kings of this earth have set themselves against the Lord's anointed. They've taken their stand against the Lord's anointed. Friends, don't take your stand with them. Listen to David. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun and enjoy the eternal refuge safe within the bounds of his glory forever. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, it is your kindness, a kindness we often overlook, but it is your kindness and your mercy nonetheless 
that stands in the way of our pursuit of sin. God, you, you thwart, as Blakey said, our efforts to pursue all these sinful pleasures and desires, and you get in the way of them that we might find ourselves completely and eternally satisfied in you and you alone. This morning, I pray that you get in the way of every single one of our efforts to pursue pursue a, a sinful and perverse pleasure outside of you and your will. Lord, in your mercy and in your grace and in your patience towards us, Lord, do not restrain your hand from getting in our way. Lord, turn us and turn our hearts towards your Son, your King. Lord, my heart wants to be King everywhere I go. I walk into places and I want to be King. I want people to do what I want them to do when I want them to do it, and I think they should. I want to be king when I'm in my car out on the road. It should go the way I want. People should do what I want to do the way I want it done. My heart walks in every space and wants to be king. God, I ask that you, by your grace and your spirit, would do what only you can do in our hearts, and you would help us to get off the throne that we might rightly worship your son, that he might rightly take his position of king of kings and lord of lords over me, for us. We ask this morning, Lord, that for his glory and for our joy, you would do that very thing. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.